Um, my name's Chris Baird. I uh, am a technologist and account manager at Innovate UK, uh, the UK's innovation agency. And it's my honour to be able to introduce and uh, moderate this EdTech Futures session. Um, just to talk a little bit about Innovate UK very, very briefly, um, we're a funding organisation uh, that work uh, very closely as an independent agency uh, of government with universities, academia, research and industry in order to foster collaborative innovation. Um, we believe that collaboration is the key to innovation and by bringing uh, business closer together with different expertise outside of business capability, that's where true change is able to happen. I've been very fortunate over the last two years to be able to, to deliver and, and lead um, much of Innovate UK's work into education innovation, uh, in addition to also helping to deliver the IC Tomorrow programme, which looks at digital innovation across all sectors where digital uh, disruption has become pervasive. Um, we're able to take key learnings from many other sectors and be able to apply them today into the challenges uh, and the opportunities that edtech companies face today. Um, so this whole session is all around uh, and all about you know, the, the, the brightest minds and, and key game-changing ideas for uh, the future of education. Uh, you know, there's a lot of opinion about it. Everybody's got uh, their, their own opinion because everybody's been through it. So uh, we'd like to take this session uh, as an opportunity to introduce some of these ideas and some of these uh, key thinkers today uh, that, that are actually operating in the edtech space today with their own products and services. Um, so without further ado, um, I'd, I'd just like, well, actually, just a quick question. Could you all raise your hands if you have two feet? Yeah? Great, great, great. So I'm going to ask you to participate with some interactive media. That's my favourite type of media, right? So I would like you to drum roll with your feet, please. And I'd like to introduce Joe Twitick from Drumroll HQ. At Drumroll, Joe is co-founder and chief button presser. Uh, his company makes games with a purpose, and their first offering is a game that teaches children to make real websites, apps, and games called Arrays All Kittens. Welcome, Joe. You've uh, stolen my first slide. That was all the, all the things I was going to say. You're a terrible person. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so as um, Chris says, I'm Joe, uh, co-founder and chief button presser of Drumroll. And we're making this game, EAK, which is the first game that teaches kids to code and create real websites and apps. So what we're trying to do is invent the most entertaining way for children to learn real coding skills. So from September 2014, as some of you might be aware, coding became compulsory as part of the UK curriculum. So now all kids across the country are having to learn how to code. So EAK is trying to solve three problems. The first is that coding is sort of globally seen as difficult, boring, and geeky. So it's almost impossible to engage students in it. So what EAK does is it seamlessly combines code education with interactive storytelling. We want seven to 13 year olds to explore this sort of fantasy internet universe where they have to use code to change the world around them. They're solving puzzles and saving kittens. 
and learning real-world practical coding skills like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript along the way. These are the languages that all websites and web apps are made out of. And this is what makes EAK unique. Many other tools, so things like Scratch, they only teach the concepts of code, not the real thing. And a lot of the things that kind of build themselves as games are kind of, they're just learning tools with sort of maybe some cute characters or a story uh, type thing bolted on. And kids can see right through that sort of thing straight away. That results in really poor engagement. So our approach has been incredibly effective. With no marketing, we have 20,000 children playing our demo across 94 countries. 95% of the children who've played our game have told us that they want to more, learn more about code after playing. The second problem that we're trying to solve is that a lot of existing coding initiatives are simply not designed to appeal to girls, which is contributing to this huge gender divide in STEM subjects. EAK is designed to empower both girls and boys with the digital skills that they need and we've achieved 46% of our players are girls. So the third problem that we're trying to solve is that so many of the teachers that we talk to are unfamiliar about code and they're, they're really worried about teaching it to their, their students. So EAK tries to make teaching and assessing code as easy as possible without like deep coding knowledge. So we'll be providing lesson plans for key stages two and three that align to the UK curriculum. And there'll be built-in tools as part of the game for measuring and assessing children's progress. By the end of the game, children are gonna be able to create their own levels. Parents and teachers are gonna be able to play and learn alongside their children and share their creations on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, children are gonna be able to make and publish their own websites and apps. So we started working on EAK around two years ago. For me, it was, I sort of came up for the, with the idea whilst I was supposed to be revising for my A-levels. A few months later, I was introduced to my co-founder, Dee, by her sister, and we started working together. We figured out the basic story that we wanted the game to follow, and she came up with the name. We then met Leonie, who's our fantastic illustrator and animator. And soon after that, we had like a little demo that we could start to show to people. And the response to that was overwhelming. We had teachers, parents, and children all reaching out to us, tweeting and emailing, telling us that they just really loved what we'd done and demanding more stuff. So we decided to form a company. We applied to Emerge, Jan's Accelerator, and were accepted, yay. Uh, and they were great for helping us out with funding and introducing us to what seemed like millions of like, helpful edtech people. And we started to improve our demo. So since Emerge, we've been working towards releasing the first full chapter of our game, uh, which we're aiming to do in September. And in the 18 months that we've been working on EAK in total, we've worked, we've worked mostly to kind of I guess what we felt was right, what made sense to us. None of us three co-founders were particularly, you know, we kind of know how to build products. We have a lot of like creative know-how, but we don't really know about running a business or how to market ourselves or any of that sort of thing. So we've sort of over time developed this 
approach, uh, a sort of set of rules for how we build our business and our product. And the way we do things is kind of, I think, different to other companies we've come across. So I thought I'd share that with you people today. So the first rule is that if you're building for kids as much as possible, you need to become a kid. So first off, that's just doing your research and definitely like don't assume that you know, what you loved when you were a kid is what children today are into. It's totally not. But you need to immerse yourselves in their culture. You need to immerse yourselves in the things that your audience loves and learn to love them too. And getting into a more childlike mindset is also really great for creativity and innovation. All the sort of social rules and inhibitions that you learn as you grow up that kind of get drilled into you by society, things like don't wear a cape to your investor meeting and don't end your conference talk with a weird parable about gravy. These things only serve to sort of stifle your creativity and animation, uh, imagination. So you need to create a working environment if you're, if you're working on a product for kids that allows this sort of creativity, this imagination and free thinking. But I don't mean the sort of stereotypical startup installing ping pong tables everywhere. It's much more about the people and the sort of general culture of you, your, your company, your organization. Being playful and encouraging creativity is something that you need to do across your organization, which was really easy for a tiny startup like us, but I guess not so much for bigger companies or more established teams. So rule two, rule two is that to build something fun, you need to have fun whilst building. So a product built by a bunch of bored people sitting at desks for hours on end is probably going to be a pretty boring product. So for us, we like to take cartoon breaks and have barbecues on the roof and play Hungry Hungry Hippos and stuff like that. For bonus points, you can combine all three. Your mindset when building your product, we found, will be directly reflected in the result. So rule three is to build at the intersection of what you love and what children love. So following rule one is kind of essential for this to work. You have to align what you love to what your audience does. And I guess it may seem like a little counterintuitive, like why not just go entirely for what children love? But by building something that you are incredibly, like, you get a lot of joy from, we found that you can pour a lot more of yourself into it. Your humor and your, your passion all sort of come through and they result in a, a product that is more genuine and human, which are kind of words that don't really mean anything, but hey. We think that this is what turns has kind of made our product from something that's useful into something that people actually love. For EAK, all of the sort of research and our playful approach has resulted in a story-driven game that's filled with quirky characters, surreal humor, and just a, a touch of darkness. And it's worked out brilliantly for us so far. Almost all of the children and adults that we've tested EAK with have absolutely loved it. So rule four is to make it human. And this is kind of, this session is kind of a, supposed to be about branding and finance apparently, which isn't something I know anything about, but this is a bit about kind of brandy stuff. So the make it human rule is kind of essential for how you interact with others. 
when you're a startup, and um, for us anyway, we felt that like if we tried to build a brand, it would just be like a facade, like a wall between us and the people who we were trying to communicate with, our, our customers. We wanted to make friends instead. So we wanted to connect with everyone, our customers, advisors, investors, on a much more sort of human level. Our most kind of successful brandy things have all been the result of us having like a creative and playful approach. Happy accidents, not the spawn of some dreary boardroom creative brainstorm. Our capes, for example, were made by Leone because she thought it would be awesome if we had capes. And now they've become these instantly recognizable symbols of EAK at events like this one. So the fifth and I think the most important rule and the one that for us I think was the hardest to learn is that you have to always do what feels right regardless of what other people tell you. When you're a startup, it's so easy to receive so much conflicting advice that it's overwhelming. And when you try and go against what kind of feels right for you, it can just be incredibly demoralizing. So I don't know if our approach would work for, I mean, anyone other than us. I mean, it's kind of worked for us. Mm. Um, but for us, I mean, the, the results have been incredible so far, and we've had an awesome time along the way. So just to finish up, when I was preparing for this talk, I, um, I turned to our fictional managing director, Tarquin Glitterquiff, for some advice on the, the subject of branding. You can follow him on Twitter, by the way. And um, he, he put down his martini, took off his sunglasses, and told me to close my eyes and imagine a jug of gravy. He said the gravy was me. It was a jug that sort of carried around the, the brown, juicy essence that was me and my humanity. He said to imagine a Yorkshire pudding on a plate and told me that that was my product. He said to pour the gravy, all my sort of humanity and meanness, which sounds kind of icky, into the Yorkshire pudding and fill the fluffy batter shell with the things that make me laugh and the things that me and my audience love. As soon the pudding is full and it starts to overflow, and there's like humanness sort of slopping down the sides. It's like escaping out into the rest of the world. It's, it's kind of gross. But you, you sprinkle a little bit of pepper on top of the gravy and it falls in the, the shape of a logo. And, and this, according to him, is, is your brand. It's salty and has lumps in. Um, it's slightly misshapen, but it is undeniably delicious. I didn't get it either, but thank you. Wow. I don't know about anybody else, but that's just made me really hungry. I'm so looking forward to lunch. Um, that was amazing. Thank you, Joe. Um, so without further ado, um, I'd like to introduce Erica Brodnock to the stage and to talk about her, her business, Charisma Kids. And um, I'm not going to take away, you know, your, your thunder by uh, introducing you and telling everybody what you already do. Okay, brilliant. There Thank you. you.
thanks very much Chris and uh, thanks everyone for coming along today uh, as Chris said I'm Erica Brodnock um, I'm the chief superhero at Charisma Kids Charisma Kids is a digital platform that helps children aged 3 to 8 to develop emotional intelligence so the first question I'm often asked is what is emotional intelligence and um, why do we care about it but it's all about the ability to identify and regulate emotions and to bring it to life a little bit for you, I'd like to introduce you to a little girl named Sancha. So Sancha's age five. Um, she's the eldest of five children. She was born to a single mum that had her at age 16. She's starting school for the first time. So suddenly she's in a complex environment with lots of new people and different personalities. A child with high levels of emotional intelligence can quickly settle themselves into a place ready for learning. For a child with low levels of emotional intelligence, that isn't so easy. That her emotions quickly spiral out of control and become an obstacle to learning. Now, the effects of this are far-reaching, um, starting with a loss of confidence in the child, but then stretching out across society and, and indeed into the economy. Uh, there have been a number of studies out of the um, University of Wellbeing at Cambridge and MIT to support this recently. The key thing here, though, is that emotional intelligence can be learned. And if it's taught early enough, we can prevent all of those problems from um, occurring in the first place. Luckily for Sancha, her mum learned how to teach her children to identify and regulate their emotions. So I'm Sancha's mum. And I'm delighted to say that at age 17, she's gone on to defy all the odds that were stacked against her in those early days. She came out of school with outstanding results at GCSE. She's won a scholarship into sixth form and she's on track to go to one of the UK's top universities. Her siblings are all peak performers now too. And I've gone on to help hundreds of families across the UK to achieve um, outstanding results with their children from, um, I, I guess, zero to hero, really, um, with emotional learning programmes. So I'm passionate about them. Um, I think that they underpin academia and, um, and that every child absolutely uh, needs the opportunity to be successful. And, and EQ provides that. But this isn't just for disadvantaged children, because every parent wants happy, well-behaved and successful children. But the reality is, is that the instances of preteen stress at the moment are highest, at the highest level since records began, and much of that's being blamed on children's overexposure to technology. Um, a recent study out of MIT showed that children are spending on average two hours a day in front of a screen and traditionally EQ needs to be developed by socially interacting with others. So big brands and manufacturers now need to start to show that actually um, interacting with tech devices is, gonna, is going to have a positive rather than negative impact on children's well-being. And that's where Charisma Kids comes in. We've uh, developed a platform that enables children to build emotional intelligence. It helps parents to turn tantrums into tranquility within the home. And it enables big brands and manufacturers to partner with us and show that they have children's well-being at the very centre of their strategies. So we launched our app um, in February 2014. 
Um, since then, we've achieved more than 70,000 downloads. We have a retention rate that's double the expected in the, um, in the gaming industry. And we've won 16, 17 now awards um, from children, parents and industry. Um, I say 17 because we've just recently been accepted onto the BBC Labs programme, where we're now working in partnership with the, um, the BBC to develop a commercial offering. So all of our learning is delivered through superhero characters, um, as, as, as Joe's just illustrated before, um, in the virtual world of Moodville. Um, children are able to personalise their own avatars and they can play their way from places like Fear Farm and Angry Alley to Love Lane and Gratitude Gardens while building um, happiness and confidence skills. Each of the games is subtly embedded with established techniques for developing emotional literacy. So um, we, we make sure that children can't smell the broccoli. Um, <laughs> it's, um, for, for parents and teachers, we provide a dashboard that one allows them to task track and reward positive real world behaviour that's intrinsically linked to the gameplay. So children understand that to build their superhero characters in our virtual world, they need to be behaving as a superhero offline for their parents and teachers. But then two, um, we also allow parents and teachers to track and trace how a child's consuming information and how that information is impacting the child's emotional um, intelligence and well-being. So as we open up our platform and take other content on, we'll be able to start to use our algorithms to see the impact that that's having on children and start to look at tailoring content for children based on their individual learning styles as opposed to, um, to sticking to an education that, that is, is more of a one-size-fits-all model. So we're a five-star rated app. Um, the feedback we've started to get in from parents has been um, nothing short of overwhelming for, um, for a mum that started an app in order to help children because that's exactly what we're doing. Essentially, one in three children under the age of eight um, have access to a tablet device at the moment. So we've kind of taken a non-traditional route to um, to those children's and to, to children's um, to those children. Um, we've partnered with a couple of multinationals that are currently distributing our app to their millions of customers, and we're seeking to do the same with many, many more um, companies who who currently have access to our brands. We've chosen uh, to um, to our consumers. We've chosen not to go down the traditional route of um, of going through schools because EQs generally considered a soft subject it's a soft skill so we feel that parents stand um, to, to gain from the behavior improvements in the home and and I mean teachers do too uh, but but we've just chosen direct to consumer as our as our route to market we've also now partnered up with the guys at Pretzel Films um, and we are in the process of producing some live action um, animated series that we're hoping to um, to get away. So if anyone wants to speak to me about that afterwards, please do. So I guess moving on to, um, to our team and our investment, 
I was asked to think about how we secured investment for Charisma Kids and I kind of think that um, in the same way that Joe did, I need to take it right back to, um, to, to grassroots and, and say that I started the company three years ago and I've kind of collected um, an awesome bunch of people along the way that have invested time, expertise and indeed money um, to the brand to, to help me to, um, to take it to where it is at this point. Um, Dr. Amanda Gummer came on board as a co-founder after I met her at Toy Fair. Um, the Charisma Kids um, concept tested so well with children um, that she decided that she was going to invest her money into it and, um, and come on board as a co-founder. Likewise, Justin Edwards joined us from Jagex. Um, he was the product director there for a game called RuneScape that was turning over £45 million a year and he's come to um, work at Charisma Kids on, on a no-fee basis while um, we get the brand up and running. And um, similar can be said of um, Chris Maples who was uh, the ex-VP Europe of Spotify and is now chair- chairing our board. Um, we've been supported by KPMG, by Hogan Lovells with our legals. Um, we've been taken to San Francisco by um, by Intel, um, and also supported by a company called We Are the Future that took us on another San Francisco trip. So we've had tons of investment. Um, we've also secured um, two hundred thousand um, pounds of cash investment. We um, secured that from angels who completely believe in in the team and I and our ability to take this product um, to market and we're obviously being invested in by um, our partners now as well. So I guess my, um, my main takeaway from thinking about this is that investment comes in many forms and looking for cash investment is, is key when you're running a startup but actually getting people on board um, helping them to share and drive your vision is a far greater investment in my opinion. So the traditional brands have shown that captivating children is um, an absolute recipe for success. Well, at Charisma Kids, we've taken that a step further and we've decided that we want to captivate children, but we also want to provide tangible benefits for families. Um, And so far, we've um, been making a success of that. Um, All that remains to be said is thank you very much for listening to me and I'm looking forward to some questions from you a bit later on. What's fascinating is that uh, Eric and I met essentially when you know this was all just a concept, and we, we talked about you know the idea of using you know, characters to be able to you know really sort of support emotional uh, intelligence, right? And it's just fascinating to see, inspiring to see how it's developed into you know this far-reaching business now. Um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce the money man of the panel, um, my colleague Jan Matern from Emerge Ventures. Hi everyone, Uh, my name is Jan Matern, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Emerge Education, which is the UK's EdTech Accelerator, uh, and the co-founder and director of EdSpace, which is uh, London's co-working space for education businesses. And today I want to talk a little bit about the kind of macro picture uh, of why we are so excited to be investing uh, in EdTech today. We um, are here because we believe that technology will fundamentally transform education over the next 10 to 20 years. And we think some giant companies will be created in the process and some really positive impact will be made on the education system. Uh, And we want to be part of some of those. 
Uh, now, nearly every walk of life has been uh, fundamentally impacted by technology. Think transport with Uber, hotels, Airbnb, travel, the enterprise. But somehow education hasn't really been touched in the same way. Uh, and we think, obviously, that that's about to change. Um, but given that people have been saying this for years and years, um, you know, when radio came out and TV and PC and whiteboards, there was always this wave of enthusiasts saying that education was just about uh, to really change. Uh, this really begs the question, why now should be any different? So our take on this is that fundamentally learning is a collaborative, uh, collaborative activity. And uh, previous, um, the, the kind of core technology that we use to deliver that is the classroom. And it's been the best tool we've ever had to, to do it. And previous technology paradigms haven't really done anything to touch the core of the collaborative learning activities that go on inside the classroom in a fundamental way. Um, on the, by contrast, uh, we think that uh, the internet is all about collaboration. And so it stands to reason that uh, the internet should be able to touch those core activities uh, and make a much more transformational impact uh, on education. So previous technologies uh, were utilized to take existing content and digitize it and put it in the classroom. Um, and we think the internet's all about taking content and putting a collaboration layer around it that, that puts it to work for the individual learner. And so whether you're talking about making content more interactive and personalized or creating new peer-to-peer -peer learning uh, technologies, um, there are so many opportunities for um, entrepreneurs like all of us to build exciting companies in this space, uh, and, and we want to invest in, in the best of them. And we think it's a really exciting opportunity. Um, only 3% of this spend is currently digital. Um, if you compare it to other media industries, that's closer to 30 40%. And you know, we think it's obvious that education is going that way. But the real question is, how do we go from uh, that macro level view to identifying the very best edtech entrepreneurs in the world that are actually tackling this? And this is a representative search that I did on angel.co, which is a popular platform on which startups in any space create profiles for themselves and advertise themselves to investors. And I found, uh, found almost 8,000 edtech companies on there. Uh, and investors um, need to kind of go from that to the five they want to invest in every year. And that's what Emerge is there to, to help them do. Uh, so we go from this mass of edtech activity down to the best in breed, we like to say, uh, through our different programs. So on the kind of research network and infrastructure point there, we've built a co-working space with 150 desks in the heart of Tech City in Shoreditch in London, uh, which is catering only to education businesses. And we price out organizations as they grow so that we can keep rejuvenating the community there with uh, new players. Um, we then have an accelerator program which takes on about a dozen companies a year. They receive some investment and get access to a massive network um, of education industry professionals, mentors, investors, and most importantly, schools uh, and universities to help them get beta customers um, as they get started. And we're then building an investment fund to follow on in the best investments that we make uh, on the back of that. 
Um, and the network that we've built around emerging education is truly comprehensive. So we try to focus not just on making the companies commercially viable, but also to help them with a pedagogical approach, uh, which is so, so vital uh, in selling into education. Uh, so here's some of the companies that we've supported. Obviously, uh, Erase All Kittens is one of our stars. Um, we started in January 2014. We've since then done 25 uh, investments um, from a pool of about 750 applications that we got from over 30 countries uh, all around the world. And we've invested around half a million, and the companies have then raised around four million uh, in follow-on funding. So they're really on a trajectory of um, exciting growth. Um, and I'd love to go into more detail on who these companies are, but um, I think that's probably for another time. I want to just show you a quick video to give you a sense of kind of what happens at Emerge. If we can put the sound up, that'd be great. Uh, what people need to be educated for is changing very rapidly, and so we need to change the way we think about and deliver education. Nearly every walk of life has been transformed by technology over the last 10 or 15 years. But the one area that hasn't really been transformed is education. The one thing that really will bring about that change is, is, is educational technology. So that was footage from our last demo day, uh, which we ran in November 2014. We run two of them a year, where the companies that we take through the accelerator program get to pitch to a room of 200 investors. Um, and um, that's a reel of some of the companies uh, in, in the current portfolio. Um, last thing I wanted to leave you with uh, is just what kind of makes us get uh, out of bed every day uh, and motivates us to do this. Uh, and it's basically that we think that technology doesn't just stand to impact education. It's really changing fundamentally um, the entire world and with it the labor market. Um, so what we prepare our children to go into through the educational system. Um, and the rate of pace at which jobs, job requirements change um, is just increasing at an ever faster, uh, 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 much, much faster than uh, ever before. Um, and because of that, the skill 
that will be priced at the highest premium in uh, today's and tomorrow's economy uh, isn't something uh, you learn in a degree. It's uh, creativity and the ability to um, adapt to ever-changing circumstances. Um, and so we really need to adapt our education system to prepare our kids for that kind of future. And I think um, some of the panelists today are a perfect example of the types of products that we need to invest in and make successful to uh, help make that happen. Thanks. Thanks, Jan. Uh, yeah, thank you again, Jan. Um, we'll come back to this idea of what makes it, you know, and it, it, what's important in terms of an investor's perspective uh, during the Q and A. Um, but, but now moving on to our final two speakers, um, just to say, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with these guys uh, fairly closely over the last uh, year or so. They, they are two of the, the 15 companies funded under the Innovate UK Learning Technologies Design for Impact competition. And um, yeah, I'd like to introduce Bethany Kobe to the stage from uh, the fantastic technology will save us. So um, my name is Bethany, I'm from Technology Will Save Us, um, and we're a business dedicated to basically sparking the imagination of young people using hands-on technology. Um, and my background is in design, branding, innovation, um, I'm a product designer, a graphic designer by training, and my co-founder's background is in something called physical computing, so basically engineering for creative outputs. Um, and I think there's kind of three things that led us to wanting to start a business around technology in the physical world. Um, one was we were both teaching in different capacities, and we're just very aware that education has a really hard time moving fast enough to keep up with the pace of tech. And it tends to present technology um, as skill acquisition and not creativity, problem solving, the way I think we as professionals kind of use technology. Um, the other thing was is that we had a child. Um, so I have a three and a half year old and he was born with an iPad, as I'm sure a lot of you have children of the same. And technology is this incredible thing that our young people are kind of exposed to. I want my son to be completely technically literate. Um, but I'm also a little bit scared of it. I'm also a little bit scared about the amount of time he spends on screens. We have lots of conversations with parents about this, and there's a fear factor related to tech, which we're kind of also addressing. Um, and then the other side of it is young people. Young people are born fearless um, and pretty creative when it comes to what tech can do, and yet they have very little options of things that are not just about a glorified television screen. And what we're really excited about is the merging of the physical and digital space in ways that actually helps young people to be producers and not just consumers of tech through physical um, technology. So, as I mentioned, our mission is really about sparking the creative imagination of young people using hands-on tech. And what we really think is that every young person is different, and you just don't know what they're going to get excited about. Someone's going to love programming, someone's going to love soldering, someone's going to love design, someone's going to love problem solving. And the more we can spark those passions individually, the more we think we can start to identify the thing that can really help a young person grow in the future. So we've built a pretty amazing team over the last 18 months. We have 20 people in Hackney in East London. I don't know if anyone knows that. Um, we're makers, um, designers, finance people, sales people, marketeers, social media, etc. Um, and basically what we've built is a collection of DIY kits that help people, families, educators to make, play, code, and invent with technology. Um, the kits are all designed around what we call everyday themes, gardening, cycling, gaming, music, fashion. 
things that young people and families are excited about. We don't lead with the tech, we lead with what you can do with the tech. If you love music, make instruments, make a speaker. If you love gaming, make your own game console, program games. So we lead with what you're going to do, not with the technology itself. But to actually do it, you have to learn some skills to get there. So every kit is really a kind of vehicle for education. Um, our kits range um, in age as well as price. So the kits range from, we say four to 104, because we have quite a lot of young at heart kids using our kits as well. Um, but four is the youngest. So in the, I think it's the upper right corner, um, that's, e, that's our electro-dough kit. It's conductive Play-Doh. So you actually make conductive dough. You make LEDs turn on, buzzers buzz, motor spin using a simply, as simple as dough. Um, as the mother of a three and a half year old, dough is a significant part of our lives. And my son makes dinosaurs' eyes light up and makes you know, soccer pitches where a little piece of um, foil becomes a soccer ball that makes a buzzing sound. He's understanding circuits. He's understanding connections. He's making switches. And he's four. Um, that makes me pretty excited. So Thirsty Plant Kit is the one next to it. That's you make your own moisture sensor out of plaster and nails. It's solar powered. And when your plant needs watering, an LED flashes to tell you to water your plants. And every kit has an extensibility to it. You can mod them, hack them, create new things connected to them. Um, so with the Thirsty Plant Kit, you can make automatic watering cans. Um, you can do lots of different things that then kind of connect to other parts of the project and other kits. The one on the bottom uh, right is the um, DIY speaker kit, where you make your own amplifier. Then you design and construct speakers out of any material from a balloon to a cereal box. Um, we now include a balloon in all of the kits because we do a lot of workshops. And in one of our workshops, a little girl made one out of a balloon. And it sounded so great that we now include a balloon in all the kits. Um, and then the one on the left is um, one of our newest kits, which is the DIY Gamer Kit. So you actually make your own games console. So you have to actually put it together yourself. You play two games it comes with, Pong and Snake, which were programmed by a 15-year-old that did a work placement with us. And then you learn, basically, step-by-step, step, how to actually program and invent your own games. What's your character? What's your scoring system? Do you have levels? Do you want to have multiplayer gaming? Do you want sounds? You're actually making decisions, doing problem solving, sharing your, sharing your games, mashing your games with other people, um, getting your parents to help you with your games. There's all different kinds of things you can do, essentially. Um, we also have learning boxes, which are collections of our kits in packs of 12 to 16 with resources, tools, activities for, and not just schools, for what we call kind of um, learning centers. So any kind of learning space that can be a library all the way to, um, to, a, to an actual school. Um, one of the things around technology that's exciting and, and, and fearful is the fact that a lot of adults in this space don't have the confidence to be teaching some of these skills and feel that they need to know the skills, what we've learned over the course of really doing a lot of workshops is this idea of co-learning, facilitation. Hopefully, most of the time, one person in a workshop is going to know more than you, and they're going to co-facilitate with you. And so a lot of what our kind of education resources are around are facilitation techniques, ways to actually include, include young people in the process of learning yourself. Um, a lot of our partners are really amazing groups as far as the learning organizations. We try and work with large organizations that reach really diverse young people. Um, so one of our um, organizations that we work with is the Princess Trust. Um, the Princess Trust reach, reaches about 58,000 young people a year. Um, very hard to reach young people. And one of my favorite stories came from the first pilot we did with the Princess Trust. So we walked into a group of, it was 14 girls. We didn't know it was going to be all girls. They had just designed websites the day before and didn't want to do whatever we were going to do. They just 
didn't want to design, they didn't want to use computers. Um, so we walked in, we started demoing some of our kits. So we showed them the speaker, we showed them the, the gamer, um, and one of the girls looked at me and said, this shit is sick. And I was like, that, that's the kind of response we want. And from that moment on, this wasn't about learning programming. This wasn't about soldering. This was about them making something that was theirs. The kits are theirs when they take them home. They can modify them. They can change them. They can um, do new things with them. And that was one of the, I think, really kind of pivotal moments for us in really seeing the responses that young people had to this idea of physical technology, using the screen as a tool, not just a medium for creativity. Um, so over the course of the last 18 months, we've sold, um, I think it's like 35,000 kits now. We sell through three channels, so retail partners, Maplins, um, Selfridges. We have a pop-up shop in Selfridges right now. We're closing a relationship with John Lewis right now. We've just closed a relationship with Urban Outfitters, so 200 shops across the U.S. and 55 across Europe, which is very exciting. Um, E-commerce directly to our customers, and then learning partners, which are everything from makerspaces to code clubs to large organizations like the Scouts, which we're working with right now. So these are really exciting partnerships for us to be building. So future um, is really about growing, scaling, failing, and changing. As a small organization um, that's very kind of purpose-led, we have always, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit more, been really iterative with how we design, develop, test, release, um, improve products and services for our customers. Um, and I'll echo a lot of what the other speakers have said. That So we include young people in our process all the time. Um, it's a part of the way we work. It's a part of how we develop and design. And it's not just about testing. It's actually about designing with them as well, which is really important. Um, two new products that we're developing right now. One is a product that we um, worked with with Innovate UK, which is called POP which is principles of programming for 9 to 11-year-olds. So it's a little character-based piece of hardware that has inputs and outputs that helps you to actually code and change the world. So you can make things like um, a, a buzzer for your door, so when your parents open your door, a buzzer goes off to tell them not to go in your door, all the way from um, alarm systems for the school when, the school, when it's lunchtime, the school bell goes off to tell everyone in the class that it's lunchtime. So it's really about programming and inventing things for the physical world. We're also um, developing a new product with the BBC, which launches next week, um, which is called the Microbit Kit. Um, so some of you might remember the Microbit from the 80s, which is one of the first personal computers that most UK homes had to learn programming. Um, most ARM engineers learned programming through the Micro. So we're developing the Micro for this generation. And I think two things that are really exciting about it. One is it's not a computer. It's a little smart device. It's a device that teaches young people programming through programming the physical world. Um, it will be given to a million 12-year-olds in September as part of this partnership between us, ARM, Microsoft, Samsung Electronics, BBC, and about 50 other um, learning um, organizations across the UK, which is really exciting. Um, and I can tell you more about that after next week because I'm not allowed to talk too much about it. Um, but where we really want to see this going is that the collection of kits that we continue to develop around these everyday themes creates a long tail of activities and exciting opportunities for young people to really get their hands on technology. Um, a really incredible amount of content is being developed, as you can imagine, both from ourselves, but also from a community of makers, parents, um, young people, and educators. This eventually becomes what is essentially a portfolio of, of gadgets, of activities, of projects, of passions that young people get really excited about. And over time, we start to see insights around individual young people and where their passions lie. 
and that helps educators, parents, and young people start to understand where they can start to find more activities and more things that really highlight that. Whether that's making wallets out of duct tape, or whether that's actually learning coding by designing your own games, we think that this is really about identifying passions that young people care about and developing products and services that really help them to kind of manifest those things. So in the end, what we really want to create is the most accessible brand for the maker generation. The maker generation is quite a small, focused area at the moment. And we think this is something that every kid is innately born with a kind of inner maker, and that parents have this really amazing opportunity to help inspire that to happen by buying products and services or using products and services that really support that innate kind of creativity in young people. So that's us. Technology will save us. Um, incredible company. Um, so this segues really ni nicely into our final speaker. Um, so uh, Bethany has obviously you know, been really championed the part of the, the maker movement and grown a great business out of this. Um, that's you know uh, that's growing and growing and growing, going on to do uh, more and more things. Our final speaker, uh, Simon Riley from Maker Club. When I first met Simon, again you know similarly to when um, myself and Erica first met. Uh, it, was, it was purely just an idea. And uh, through the Learning Technologies Competition, uh, we, we funded the Design Feasibility Study for Maker Club and Carduino, which I'll let Simon explain a bit more about now. Thank you. Uh, so hi, everyone. Yeah, as Chris said, I'm Simon and from Maker Club. And uh, this is the team here, um, Declan and uh, that's Guy and Charlie. And we've basically uh, only been going about a year and a half now. And, um, the, the, the reason we started was, was basically a personal frustration of mine. Of when I left university, I actually had to relearn just about everything uh, I'd learned in the first place because what I'd learned was, was already obsolete. It was uh, you know, Java and everything was JavaScript. And, and I got to a place where uh, it took me five years to get to a place where I felt you know, I, should, I should have started off from the four years at university. So uh, I feel like it's really important to actually look at where the economy and the future of the economy is going to actually then decide what the future of, uh, of uh, education should be. And um, for me, that's all about the Internet of Things. So um, I've come out of the maker movement that, that Bethany alluded to, and uh, I spent an awful lot of time with microcontrollers and, and coding. And it wasn't until 3D printing got, uh, came along that, that it actually allowed me to get get a real sense of what I could do and what I could achieve because I didn't really have the craftsmanship to make the things that I wanted to make. And I was thinking this morning uh, about what it was, if I could explain how the Internet of Things could change things. And I was brushing my teeth and I felt, actually, the toothbrush was invented in 1930. and hasn't really changed since. You know, electric toothbrush just vibrates and that's the end of it. But if you put the Internet of Things on it, put the ability of it to connect to the Internet, then all of a sudden, if you think about, well, okay, a parent um, can't, can't necessarily make their kid brush their teeth long enough, you can then actually chart how long it's been done and how long for, and you can make a game out of it, and all of a sudden the kids, you know, you know exactly how long everyone's been doing it, and, and there's some innovation there. And the point is, this means that the, it levels the playing fields massively. So instead of, um, instead of just Oral B being in charge of who, who, who makes toothbrushes, just about anyone with a 3D printer and an idea can come up with something and away they go. So for me, I wanted to actually make something that allowed kids or allowed people to, to come up with the idea and then just, just go with it and run with it. 
And what we've done is we've created this, um, this microcontroller, uh, which is very similar to the micro bit that Bethany talked about. And actually, I'd like to talk a bit more to her about getting hold of one, because we're desperate to get hold of one. But one we've made is actually on sort of the micro bit on, on steroids, is, is how I would uh, describe it. So we've got uh, Bluetooth capability there, and we've made it very specific for robotics and um, for motors and all the things that, that we've noticed kids actually really enjoy making and, and doing. And the big thing for me is combining the technology of the, of the electronics with the 3D printing. So here we've got a 3D printed car that we designed um, with the feasibility study that, um, through Innovate UK. And the amazing thing about this is that it's, it's both programming. So they program the microcontroller to listen to um, uh, a remote control on their phone, so a phone app that controls the car. So there's the programming there, but there's also a huge layer of, of, of physics and maths and electronics that goes on top of that. So for example, um, if you put an accelerometer on the chip, you can see that, how fast the car goes, and then you can take the tires off and see how friction works. And so there's the, the, the physics of mass equals force times acceleration, equally all the gear ratios, and things like if you increase the size of the wheels, you've got sort of higher top speed but lower acceleration. So there's all the physics and maths that, that, that comes along with, with the fun of just, just playing with these cars. Here's another thing that we've created. Um, this is a 3D printed grabber. So all the parts, again, are 3D printed. And um, the kids can customize them, change the bits, change the arm at the top. So here we've just got a grabber. But it could be that they, they make an iPhone holder. And then all of a sudden, you can, you can do stop frame animations with electronics as well as, um, as, well as the actual coding that, that, that's required on top of that. And then the final thing I wanted to talk about was, um, was the importance for me for a physical space. So we've actually opened up our first maker lab down in Brighton um, uh, back in April. And for me, uh, there's, there's a bit of a question mark over to whether or not the schools at the moment are, are fit for purpose. So the number of schools I've gone into where um, they're, they're sort of learning 10-year-old technologies on five-year-old machines. And, and then you go into the maker spaces where I'll see kids, 15-year-old kids, doing stuff. Um, with Oculus Rifts and virtual reality, and the difference is, is, is just enormous. And so for me, uh, I'd like to see if there's a way for schools to either welcome in experts um, in digital education or perhaps uh, have the kids go out to the spaces, like maker spaces and fab labs that are cropping up, that, um, that really are designed for this sort of level of digital education, so not the classroom, as, as, as Jan was, was talking about earlier. Thanks very much. Uh, one of the, the, the little anecdotes, so when Simon and I met for uh, his uh, final uh, project review meeting, we were uh, in Brighton, and where they're based, and it was the middle of the Brighton Festival, and you know, clearly we're going to have the meeting in the middle of the Brighton Festival in you know, kind of like a beer garden. Obviously there was no alcohol to run at the time. Um, and we, we were running through the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the deliverables on the project and how it's all going, and um, along with him, Simon had like a, just, a, just a crate full of ele electronics and circuit boards and everything. And um, you know, there, there's kids around, there's families around, it's, it's great, it's, you know, so we're having a good time, and we're obviously talking business. And um, just out of nowhere, just this little, little scamp just walks up to us. He goes, all right, boys, I see you've got a box of circuits there. <laughs> yeah. And then that then you know, uh, developed into Simon and Declan getting you know, bits and pieces out of the, the, the box and uh, 
pulling together the remote control car and you know before long there was like a crowd of children just around us I'm sure they planned it but it, it happened it might have been organic it might not have been I'm sure it was um, but needless to say this whole concept of the maker movement and kids being more engaged with technology ever than before and you know being able to use this as a, uh, as a platform in order to develop you know real skills for future uh, for their futures is vitally important um, and this is a lot of the work that, that, that that you know, I, I do now, and you know, it's a real privilege for me to be able to work with such bright minds that are mapping out the, the, the ways in which people are going to be learning for the future, and I think that's so important. Um, so we're going to go into a Q&A now. Um, there's questions for everybody, but I, I kind of feel like actually some of the questions you guys should probably all have a stab at answering, or at least a few of you. So um, this first question is sort of directed at Jan. Um, but I think it's important that everybody uh, may, or at least you know, some people have a, have a chance to say something. Um, so from the investment perspective, where do you sort of see, um, where's the importance lie in terms of a, bringing a great edtech product to market? And you know, what do you ultimately think makes the difference to investors between success and failure in the sector? Yeah, sure. I mean, so like in any sector, the thing that we look for most is just a really killer, killer team. Um, and the number one criteria in there is that we look for incredible executors uh, that you know, go from meeting to meeting with us and having produced incredible stuff in, in the two weeks that went between the meetings. Uh, and then I guess the second thing there is this overarching vision for the big thing they want to build. Um, you know, it's, all, it's good to, to have a, a small uh, minimum viable product to demonstrate some initial traction, but um, you really want to see as an investor that they see the potential in, um, in what they're building and the ability there to build something that makes a meaningful impact that becomes a giant company. Um, so that's kind of on, this, on the team front. Um, and then we look for, um, you know, we, we look for big markets that, um, where there's a, a, a real problem there. And um, ideally, you, um, you address a niche that no one else has really um, discovered yet, uh, but about which you're convinced that it will explode and become a, a huge market, a bit like the maker movement uh, today. Um, and I guess the areas in which we're, that we're really interested in um, are this theme of continuing uh, education that I was talking about earlier, this idea that uh, we will continue to educate ourselves um, throughout our careers in the future rather than doing a degree and then being done for the rest of our lives. And technology products that, that address that uh, as well as um, products that bring tech uh, to kids um, as they develop for, uh, for their lives. And so I am surrounded by some really, really interesting companies by that uh, measure. So it's interesting that you don't mention commerciality once, though. Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of an assumed... <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, obviously you want companies that make a lot of money, um, ultimately. And... Um, you know, I, I suppose one, one interesting um, parameter to think about is um, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, products in, in education tend to um, demonstrate a kind of linear growth curve, um, especially companies that um, sell directly to educational institutions. And um, those have a place, and they can uh, 
uh, create enormous wealth for the entrepreneurs that built them. Uh, but for early stage, high risk investors, um, that's not always um, exactly what people are looking for. So um, the, the other um, characteristic that we seek in the companies is that they have the potential for exponential growth because uh, the technology scales really quickly. Simon, I saw you nodding your head there and I'd like, quite like to flip it. So from the other side, those looking for investment and have gone for investment, what do you think makes the difference to investors? Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of what Jan said um, has, has held true in, in our experience. Um, very much scalability is the thing that, that a lot of people are looking for. So how does it scale and, and you know, can you take this national or global? And it's something we've, we've spent a lot of time thinking about. And then I think the other thing I, I just wanted to say was that sort of the combination of, of the technology and the pedagogy is so important. So we've met quite a lot of people who are quite technically sound, but then necessarily, don't necessarily have the pedagogy side of things, and, and vice versa. And I think, for me particularly, in the space that we're in, the, the two are very important together. Mm. I, mean, I think it's quite interesting across all the, the product businesses here, is that you, you kind of take a closed loop approach. You know, it's, it's all about being able to marry really great tech with uh, really great learning outcomes, and then being able to sort of be able to have that fed back into the next stage of what they're then being able to learn by using your tech, right? And I think that's really interesting. Um, Joe, move to you. I'd, I'd like to, you know, go back to this idea of, of, of revenue generation, right? So a lot of young businesses get asked how to generate yeah, revenue, um, and then you know do that at scale. Um, I know you're, you're fairly early stage still, but have you, have you been able to get any answers to that that problem? Or that well, question. I mean, for us. Um we are we're still pre-revenue at the moment. Well, I mean, we've got like little bits here and there, but we don't really have anything sort of consistent coming in at the moment. We're planning um, on selling mainly to to parents, so we we think that um, some of the things that our game emphasises maybe suit parents a little bit more than it suits teachers. But we are also definitely planning on on selling to schools as well. Uh, we're actually in the process of um, signing up an academy chain of 45 schools as our first customer, which is exciting. Cool. But um, yeah, for us, it's it's something that we're still we're still figuring it out. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully, we can figure it out soon. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. <laughs> so, Bethany, you and I talked about this idea earlier around actually the marketplace isn't necessarily the traditional learning environment, the school or whatnot. So, I guess you know, looking to sell. Um, outside of the school environment is really important, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean when, we, when we started, we intentionally didn't start to sell to schools. We started because we felt that schools weren't actually incorporating. So we started before the computer science curriculum changed. We didn't even know it was going to change. Um, it was just good timing. Um, I think for us, there's a bunch of interesting things that are positives and negatives. One, it's really hard growing a market. So this isn't a market, right? It's a toy-esque product. We sit somewhere really lovely between traditional craft kits that tend to be for girls, science kits that tend to be for boys, and then Lego, which is this amazing thing, but not particularly technical, and the part of Lego that is technical is really, really expensive. So we sit in this really interesting space that's about growing a market. The thing that is good is that toy is totally focusing on this, right? Disney has accelerator programs solely focused on the maker movement, Everyone's trying to put AI in their toys right now. Like it's it's getting a bit weird, um, <laughs> but but it's interesting because everyone's 
really paying attention to it. So that has allowed us to open up, at least retail has been a really exciting opportunity to kind of build that market. The other thing that's hard is that we're making hardware. So, and when you're running a hardware business, you're running a hardware and a software business at the same time, basically. Mm -hmm. So we have a scalable framework for making, which is the platform that you make around, which is now in a much better position than like a year ago. Um, and all the kids can kind of go through that now, but we're still making physical stuff and it's cash intensive. Mm. And it's very unknown to the investment world. Um, hardware hasn't been innovated in 50 years. Um, there's, it's much easier now because of Arduino, because of 3D printing, because of the cost of everything is so much lower. So you can do it, Kickstarter makes it possible, etc. But hardware is still a um, risky place to invest. Um, the good news is that we can point to companies in the US that are getting a lot of money, that are scaling, that are IPOing, et cetera. And the same is true of EdTech. I think EdTech is still really immature as far as an investment space. Um, but when businesses in the US get 100 million pounds of investment to open new schools, mm -hmm. that's a, it's, it's a nice thing for us in the UK to be able to point to those things because it's validating from a, yeah, from a risk perspective. So, so let's stay on that point of validation then. So. Uh, Maybe it seems like that the investment landscape uh, hasn't matured in their tech because there's it's, there's a difficulty in being able to understand what really works and then being able to hang your hat on that and say, okay, this really works, therefore it should be invested into. You know, how easy have you found it to validate what you do? Yes. Yeah. Um, and this is I'm, I'm going to ask you know the other guys as well. I mean, I think because. Um we, the founders, came from a design background. We're inherently, I mean, they call it agile in the startup world. That's just the design process. You make something, you iterate it, you put it in the world, you get feedback, you redesign it, you iterate it. And that's so embedded in our professional lives that I think when we started our business, that was just how we did it. So we started by doing workshops. We didn't sell any products until we did workshops first to start to establish the pedagogies behind it, where the pain points were. And workshops actually started as a revenue stream in our it's no longer a revenue stream. We actually stopped it to grow other channels, but have kept it as a free part of the business because it's basically an amazing way for us to always get feedback. Um, and also, everyone in the business does workshops. So whether it's the accountant or you know, really like the accountant or the head of production, everyone is doing workshops with it. And I think this goes to your point around being immersed in the space that your users are in and our users are different. They're all in different spaces. We have the Great Ormond Street Hospital using our kits with kids in hospital beds all the way to, you know, moms buying it from a shop. So the more we can do workshops to understand that, I think the more we understand how to design them better every time. So yeah, that iterative approach to design is, yeah. is really important. They go the double diamond in other sort of circles, don't they? Um, but Erica, maybe you could talk a little bit about Validating emotional intelligence. That must seem like such a, a, a difficult thing to do, right? It is, and um, I suppose EQ is one of those subjects where um, people want to understand how we can prove um, what it is that we do. Um, we've 
recently started to work with the University of Salford um, and we're running some trials now to start to prove the efficacy of the Charisma Kids. We've got lots of anecdotal feedback from parents, the feedback that we get from emails, from um, comments on the App Store and that sort of thing shows us that actually we're having the impact that we, um, that we seek to have. Um, however, what we want to do is start to test baselines and, and just see how vast that improvement really is from um, child to child. So what, will that be done via a randomised control test? RTC That's right, so um, randomised control trials will start to um, to show us that we've had an impact on um, a child's EQ and that over time, in sort of five to ten years, we'll start to be able to see whether children that we've worked with um, have uh, reduced propensity to go on to develop mental health issues in the future as well. So we're really excited about starting to um, to, to run some of those longitudinal studies. Um, but we're also starting to get some early indications as to actually we can see that behaviours improved from this level to this level within the home. It's, it's fascinating really because I mean, you know, the, the whole point of education is that it should be underpinned by sort of research, right? But it's such a difficult thing to prove. Um, and maybe this is where the, thing, the idea of AI in, in, in education technology projects or products or analytics in real time and adaptive learning uh, in algorithms being able to be applied you know, in innovations to come. Um, it, that might make that whole process slightly easier. Um, and see, over time, I think that what we seek to do is start to look at how a child's um, reacting, as I said before, to the content that they're being fed. Because if a child's in stress, they're not actually learning. Mm -hmm. So the whole purpose of education is that children learn. We currently wait until um, the end of a year to test that the child's learned everything that they've kind of taken on th throughout the whole year. If we're seeing immediately that a child's too stressed to take on the information that we're, we're giving them, then we need to adapt the information that we're giving them in order to meet the child's needs. I think that we'll have much stronger children, obviously mm. we'll have much stronger children coming through the channels, and that's why we um, sit firmly in EdTech. So it's all about us being able to understand, us society being able to understand how we go about learning, and how, what are the optimum conditions around being able to you know, improve those sort of learning outcomes. It's fascinating. Um, so what I really want to quickly do is, um, I am going to ask, ask the audience for some questions. We've only got about 10 minutes left, just short of that. But the question that I would like the, the, the product guys to, to, uh, to answer is twofold. Biggest headache today, or headaches? And what would you have done differently if you were you know, running a traditional brand? Like so many of the companies that are listening to you today are, 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 are built or are working in, you know, what, what would you have done differently? I'll start with you, Joe. Um, so for us, I think our biggest headache has been that our, from the very beginning, we decided that we need the best way our product could work would be for it to be really story-driven, which doesn't really fit with kind of the startup model because you can't build an MVP of a story. <laughs> um, so we had we've had like our demo of like a little bit of our game, but it hasn't really got any of the the story in it that kids have responded really well to in in testing. So we've had to sort of um, our approach is to kind of release it in batches, but it. Everything takes like a has taken like a long time trying to do this this really immersive story thing, which is um, it's a problem, and 
I don't know, I guess we need more people, but it's it's um, that's probably our big, biggest highlight. Yeah, and on, on the traditional brand, if you were so, to run again? If we were a traditional brand, uh, we would try and not try and become a non-traditional brand, I guess. <laughs> like it, the way, I think the way we work together as a team is very much, and like the way we actually brand ourselves is kind of unbrand, unstartup. Um, so, I think if you, if I were, was working on a product like this within a larger organization, I would want to try and isolate my team kind of from the politics and the bureaucracy of that larger organization to let things kind of incubate and grow on their own first until it was established and then maybe let it out into the wider organization. Let creativity sort of flow. Erica, do you want to answer that? Yeah, so um, our biggest pain point um, speaks to something that you said earlier, Bethany, about growing a market. So we're growing a market um, that doesn't um, exist at the moment, and we're actually um, using technology for a subject that is traditionally ignored in the UK. So um, we're um, broaching new grounds on a number of um, of areas within one company and so that's made it really difficult to kind of um, get from A to B and it's taken us a while to, to mm. finally hone um, our offering and get it out to, to market so that's been painful and frustrating on a number of levels. Um, if I was to have built um, a more traditional brand I suppose I would have gone for um, a more traditional medium of taking a new product, a new um, yeah product or um, concept to market, and that probably would have meant that we went for TV first, and then um, filtered everything off the back of that. But I suppose um, it, it's easy to look at it in hindsight, mm. um, but you don't know what you don't know while you're starting to to move along the journey. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to cut it short there, if that's right. I'm going to put it out to the, to, to the audience. If there's any questions, I've got a question here quickly, because we've only got a couple of minutes left, but I would like to get some audience interaction. Um, I wanted to ask you, it might sound a little bit strange, but um, there is some backstory to it. Um, somebody told me that um, your relationship uh, with the people you're building uh, for and kind of ultimately your product will be defined by the way you call them. And uh, you know, this year I started this connected toy company and I realized I don't even know how to call exactly the people I'm building it for because uh, it's definitely not consumers and not customers, uh, not subscribers. So um, I heard that Bethany uh, today said users. It, like I was wondering, if, if she or maybe also some others want to chime in and say, how do they define the people who they are building for? So, thank you. Uh, so we, we call ours members, and, and for me it's very much about building a, a community and, and the members, you know, the Maker Club members and people who will, will ideally learn and then create and then share back. So, and that's a very important part of our, well, our ethos and um, the online platform that we're building, because without that, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole sort of um, uh, theology or, or uh, idea behind the pedagogy of, of creativity. There's so much more retention and learning when you create and you share. Um, so for us, members um, is, is, is what we do. 
Jews or bakers. Anybody else want to say anything? Embers? I mean, we, we use users a lot, and we, we use makers all the cool. time. How about learners? I think learners is probably quite cool to, to we this. We call the process sponge. the learning journey, mm -hmm. but we don't call them learners mm -hmm. if the journey you're going through is learning. It's a lifelong learning process, isn't it? I don't think young people are trying to learn. Yeah, maybe not. I think they're, they're, they're encouraged. Players. 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 Okay. And for us, it's heroes. Heroes. Great. Um, is there any other questions? We might have time for one more. But maybe one over there, and then if we've got time, we can come over to you, if that's okay. Thank you. <coughs> Lewis Bronze from Discovery Education. I'd like to ask Jan, you showed a picture of a classroom. Do you see the opportunities for the kind of companies you invest in, informal or in informal learning? And if informal, how do you get over, if you want, if you're looking for exponential growth, how do you get over the fragmentation of the education market across national barriers and even within countries? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so we do everything from nursery through to higher ed and then informal learning as well. Uh, and we've done probably 50-50 between formal and informal. Um, so for the formal sector, we focus uh, on companies that distribute directly to teachers, students, or parents rather than going top-down in, in schools. Uh, most of the time, uh, because we think that is a far more scalable channel to market. Um, and as to your point about internationalization, um, I suppose we've only really invested in businesses like that uh, that have either focused on teaching tech in schools or math in schools, which are relatively easy to internationalize across borders. Um, yeah, and we'd find other things more difficult. Very well. Unfortunately, that's that's all we've got time for, guys. And um, why don't we all thank our great speakers today? And it's really inspirational stuff, I think. <laughs>